Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening, and I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you will find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. Today, I'm joined by Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and a research associate, and Dylan Palman, executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a research fellow here at Acton. This week, after we've been off for two, we'll start catching up on things that have happened, like the eventual election of Representative Kevin McCarthy to the Speaker of the House, and whether or not we care too much about professional sports. But first... Right before the end of 2021, Benedict XVI, Pope Emeritus, passed away. I'll start here from the obituary published in the New York Times. Benedict XVI, the Pope Emeritus, a quiet scholar of diamond-hard intellect who spent much of his life enforcing church doctrine and defending tradition before shocking the Roman Catholic world by becoming the first pope in six centuries to resign, died on Saturday the 31st. He was 95. Benedict's death was announced by the Vatican. No cause was given. This past week, uh, the Vatican said that Benedict's health had taken a turn for the worse, quote, due to advancing, advancing age. Uh, Dan, you had mentioned uh, well, before we started here that um, many of the obituaries uh, had their problems. Uh, so feel free to jump in and address any of that, but I'll just uh, throw it open here for thoughts on the legacy of Benedict XVI. The lead to this obituary is actually better than a lot. Um, what most of the secular press has focused on is Benedict as a sort of Rottweiler, as someone who spent his life pursuing heretics, uh, advancing a very narrow sectarian religion. And I was so heartened to hear that the quiet scholar leads the New York Times, although there are digressions there that fall prey to the other things. I mean, this is what one of the one of the amazing legacies of Pope Benedict is. You know, not every pope is a theologian, and we should not expect every pope to be a theologian. But Benedict very much was a theologian. Um, his first book that I encountered was his introduction to Christianity, which is his explication of the Apostles' Creed. Um, which came out in 1968. So Benedict is still a very young man uh, at this point. Um, and what struck me as, as then a young man reading this book was how sensitive it was to the place of people trying to believe in the modern world. He is very upfront that belief has its challenges in the modern world, that those challenges are real, and spends the book giving believers grounds for faith in the modern world. And it's a very it's a it's a wonderful volume. It's a very unexpected volume in a lot of ways. Um, he has this great line that I love where he says, uh, just as the believer knows himself to be constantly threatened by unbelief, which he must experience as a continual temptation, 
So for the unbeliever, faith remains a temptation and a threat to his apparently permanently closed world. In short, there is no escape from the dilemma of being a man. There is grounds for hope even in unbelief. Benedict says God is searching for us. Um, and that that has always been a grounds for hope in my life in times of stronger belief and weaker belief because um, there's there's grounds for hope in the Lord in, in both states. Now, his life, his theological work was primarily centered on reconciling faith and reason and showing that these two, well, they exist sometimes in apparent tension. In reality, there is no such tension. And two books that I would guide readers to, one is a very short book uh, published by Erdman's Press here called In the Beginning, A Catholic Understanding of the Story of Creation and Fall. And in it, it's a series of homilies he gave um, about sort of what we have in the biblical account of creation and how we view that and what we can take away from that in light of living in the modern world and modern science. And it's a beautiful explanation of both showing where um, those, those common points. Another, another book, he wrote a trilogy uh, later in his life uh, called uh, the Jesus of Nazareth trilogy, which he finished when he was pope, although he was very careful <coughs> In those books to say that this is not an exercise of my magisterium, this is the fruit of my studies. It was a very humble study of the life of Christ. And again, he's trying to find that common point between Orthodox Christian Christology and modern historical Jesus research. And it's brilliant in many ways, and I'd commend it to readers. Uh, Relevant especially to Acton audiences is his social encyclical, Caritas in Veritate, uh, uh, Charity and Truth. Uh, and it was the first sort of statement of his papacy on Catholic social teaching, uh, extended statement. He had written about liberation theology, uh, combated uh, liberation theology uh, very uh, admirably earlier in his career. But he wants to ground economics and markets in truth about the human person and truth about both our freedom and our responsibility. Um, he notes uh, there that uh, the economic sphere is neither ethically neutral nor inherently inhuman and opposed to society. It is part and parcel of human activity and precisely because it is human, it must be structured and governed in an ethical manner. This is very consonant with our mission. Um, it was something – Sam Gregg wrote a great piece on it when it came out in Act, uh, at Acton uh, and we'll link to that in the show notes. Um, and you know, again, grounding this in the very beginning – towards the beginning of this document, he says, integral human development – presupposes the responsible freedom of the individual and of peoples. No structure can guarantee this development over and above human responsibility. So he's constantly turning us back to the human person, constantly turning us back to um, that search for truth in freedom, but also bounded by responsibility, uh, a truly impressive legacy across 
across many domains throughout a very long and very fruitful life. Yeah, I, so I'm Greek Orthodox, as uh, listeners may know. Um, but I actually began my book, uh, Foundations of a Free and Virtuous Society, uh, with a quote from Benedict XVI at the time uh, he wrote it, Joseph Cardinal Ratz- Ratzinger. Uh, he said, Today we need a maximum of specialized economic understanding, but also a maximum of ethos, so that specialized economic understanding may enter into the service of the right goals. Um, this just gets right to what Dan was saying of his insistence on the the inseparability of faith and reason. Um, and really, I think uh, you could even say beyond that, um, he just he sees the universe created by God as a whole, uh, as human life as a whole, that you can't just parse out, uh, you know, certainly for scientific purposes, you can study things in isolation, but real life is not a laboratory. Real life... Uh, does not exist in that way. And that should be a check to every temp- intellectual temptation we have, uh, whether it be to in, in the realm of economics to say, all you need is the analysis. Um, that would be mistaken. On the other hand, to say, well, you know, because we know, you know, we have our ethical uh, understanding or we have our, we have our theological understanding, we don't need uh, the work of economists, uh, that's equally an error. The economic aspect of our lives is part of who God created us to be. Um, his encyclical Caritas and Veritate talks about just the human need and desire for love. And I, I reread it a little bit this morning, um, and I couldn't help but think of Adam Smith, uh, who in his Theory of Moral Sentiments says that uh, man desires not only to be loved, but to be lovely. That is, to be the proper object of love. Um, there is a very interesting common impetus behind the work of you know these people separated very far apart. Um, but in its beginnings, at least, uh, the discipline of economics was political economy. It was far more integrated uh, with other disciplines. Um, I also, uh, yeah, I mentioned that I'm Orthodox. Uh, one of the things I remember um, kind of, again, looking from the outside, is uh, a few years back now, uh, Benedict gave an address at Regensburg, uh, which uh, the press also did not do a great job covering. Uh, I remember at the time, um, they said, oh, this was, they, they tried to call it like anti-Islamic, if I remember right. Um, and that, was, that is really not the case, if you read it. Uh, for one thing, he's uh, recounting a historical uh, occurrence uh, where he had read a edition, uh, a translation of a dialogue um, from the 14th century, um, and the dialogue is between uh, Manuel II Paleologos, the Byzantine emperor, um, and uh, Muslim representatives, and they're they're talking about the place of truth. Um, they're talking about whether or not uh, religious conversion can be compelled by violence. Um, he was against it, <laughs> um, rightly so. Um, I know many Muslims today who are against that, and rightly so. Um, but this this is something that, you know, he appeals to the Logos. He appeals to a, a Greek Orthodox Byzantine emperor. Um, it's something that I know there was interest um, among, for example, uh, Father Matthew Baker, um, uh, a young uh, promising scholar who unfortunately died um, in a car accident a few years ago. But he had written about a little bit about Benedict XVI as a possibility for, you know, a basis of ecumenical discussion on social issues. Um, Benedict just had a huge, huge vision of our place in the world um, before the cross. 
And that's something that, you know, really you're just not going to get in any of these headlines. You know, they, they call him, oh, like a conservative or I don't know, probably I'm sure someone used the term ultra conservative. I, I can't confirm any particular publication, but um, probably probably just with reference to, you know, his bringing in uh, the Latin mass and being OK with that. But that's he opened it up for people, right? That was, it was a, an act of toleration. <laughs> you know, it's, it's literally the exact opposite. It was a liberal thing to do uh, to al- allow parishes and allow people to, to come in and practice, you know, older rites that they uh, had come to love for whatever reason. Um, and, and even the title of, you know, you mentioned it's charity and truth, but of course, caritas is, is Latin for love. It's the highest form of love. This is a man who, put love in the center, love and truth, um, into the center of all that he did. Um, and, you know, doesn't mean that there's nothing anybody couldn't, you know, in good conscience, uh, agree or disagree with. Um, but, uh, I think, I think there's, there's just deep wells of knowledge and wisdom, uh, that anyone can find if they look into his works. I think some of Dan's suggestions were excellent. Um, and I would, I would highly recommend listeners, uh, go beyond the headlines um, and really, really, no matter what their tradition, look into the legacy of Benedict XVI. Just to note for the record, uh, a search for Benedict XVI and the term ultra-conservative, um, the top return that I'm getting is from Vanity Fair, which is surprising because their religion coverage is usually so exceptional. Uh, Dan, one of the things that is unique about the passing of Benedict XVI is that it uh, does not trigger the election of a new pope because Benedict XVI resigned, uh, prompting the election of Pope Francis. Uh, How do we grapple with that part of it? I mean, as noted in the New York Times, this is the first time it happened in six centuries. Uh, So clearly this is not the kind of thing that's common. I just also want to give a bit again from this New York Times uh, obituary. Uh, After the selection of his successor that March, Pope Francis, the former Cardinal Jorge Mario Bergoglio from Buenos Aires, in a temporary stay at uh, Castel Gandolfo, the papal summer residence, Benedict moved to a convent in Vatican City. It was the first time the two pontiffs had shared the same grounds. The two men were reportedly on good terms personally, but it was at times an awkward arrangement, and Francis moved decisively to reshape the papacy, firing or demoting many of Benedict's traditionalist appointees and elevating the virtue of mercy over rules that Benedict had spent decades refining and enforcing. So have at it. I, I would say that that is a mixed ca- mischaracterization um, in, terms of, in terms of the fact that, that Benedict is rule-focused. Now, there are certainly places for rules in the life of the church. Religion itself is <laughs> etymologically <laughs> linked to the notion of rules. And when you have a religion with rights and these sorts of things, and the many administrative po- challenges that all popes face, uh, there is a need for rules um, and there's a need for them to be followed. And I don't see, I don't see, I mean, I think Pope Francis does emphasize mercy and grace in a very unique and at times very compelling way, but I don't see them at odds. What, one of the downsides of Pope Benedict's resignation was that there is the notion that there is in some sort of, you know, that there are two popes. We, the, the title Pope Emeritus was sort of invented um, to sort of diffuse this notion, but it's still sort of confusing um, for many people. 
Um, and I don't think many, I think many Catholics, because Pope Benedict XVI was so beloved by many, and because Pope Benedict XVI um, led such an active life of scholarship, still turned to Pope Benedict for leadership. And they certainly should turn to Pope Benedict as, as, a, as, a, as a thought leader, as a theologian, as an excellent example of uh, dialogue and exchange and respect for other religions. Um, but as far as I can tell, this actual this, – this tension is something that is alluded to more than substantive. Pope Benedict XVI um, would only periodically issue statements. Pope Benedict XVI lived not a life of seclusion – but he very much let Pope Francis be the Pope. Um, there wasn't, I don't think, I don't think there's any evidence of any strong rivalry, although there are certainly uh, partisans of both popes that would, that liked that image for various reasons. Um, I think, you know, the notion of, of papal resignations is very complicated. It's not, it's something that's unusual in the history of the church, I think, for very good reasons, um, because it can be a source of confusion for people, and it can be difficult uh, as 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 this was. I mean, the the invention of new titles, the constant sort of clarifications that had to come out. Um, it's it's a very challenging thing to have, you know. A, a a Pope Emeritus. Um, and hopefully, um, you know, what the Spirit has in store for the church, we do not know. But hopefully, if, if such a situation were to arise again, where there would be in the future a Pope Emeritus, uh, these things would be more clear and more sorted out because of, I think, the excellent example that, that Pope Benedict gave in that role. Uh, I mean, as the Greek Orthodox guy, I'd say, you know, now you, you, you're even, you have even fewer popes, and that's a bad thing. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, no, I get, I, you know, I certainly get um, from within, you know, there's, there was a lot of, you know, there's, there's a lot of gossipy press at the Vatican, just like there is everywhere, Um Technically, the Pope is still head of state uh, of an actual sovereign nation, um, and that complicates things, um, I think, unduly to some degree in that a lot of, at least, you know, English language press about anything going on with the Pope or the Vatican is is very much, you know, in this kind of political gossip lens. And, um, yeah, sure, there's there's intrigue, there's, you know, there's parties, there's, you know, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's true. Um, but there's also people, you know, the, we're talking about men who felt a calling, right? You don't, you don't become a monk, a priest, a bishop, a cardinal, eventually pope um, for fun. Or for, yeah, I mean, like, even if you're like, let's say you're power hungry, there's a lot of other ways <laughs> to, to get power, right? Like, like you're probably not going to be pope. I'm sorry to any listeners who are listening and aspiring to be pope. You will probably not be pope. Um, you know, so, the, I mean, just the idea that, oh, this we can boil this down to some kind of political calculus and that'll explain everybody's moves. I really 
am very skeptical of. That doesn't mean, of course, politics is part of life too, just like economics, just like every other aspect. I don't mean to to try to separate that out and say it doesn't matter, uh, but only to say that that it is an error, just like it's an error to reduce our economic life to economics uh, alone. It's an error to reduce even political intrigue at the Vatican to purely political uh, purposes and desires. These are these are people who hopefully. Uh, believe they are trying to serve a mission um, from God. And that's that's something that, you know, you, you just don't see in the press enough, unfortunately. It just always gets treated as, well, the Pope is kind of like the biggest politician in the world, and so we're, we're going to take that angle. And yeah, I guess there's some truth to that. Oh, it's biggest politician of the smallest country in the world. <laughs> uh, biggest church, though. Uh, but still, biggest religion. Um, but still, it's, it's just not... It, it always seems odd to me. It, it just strikes a strange note. Well, certainly you can't dispute the uh, uh, importance versus landmass uh, uh, presided over of the Pope is probably uh, the, the widest uh, of those in, uh, of any leader in the entire world. So if you have to think about him in such crass worldly terms, uh, at least that's a good one you know, to put King in The King of Luxembourg, uh, you know, he's right up there. Don't, yeah, don't sleep on the King of Luxembourg <laughs> or of Liechtenstein for that matter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Dan, the one other thing I, I suppose we should comment on is, and this shows up numerous times in the New York Times obituary and in other obituaries as well, is Benedict XVI's handling of the sex abuse scandals of the Catholic Church, which so plagued uh, John Paul II at the end of his papacy. Um, and I, I think that's something that would be remiss if we didn't remark on in some form. This is the crisis in the church. And it has been for people don't know how long. Um, and many popes now have struggled and have failed in numerous ways. In that that is a good ways. point, too, that it is it was a struggle before we knew it was. Yes. Um, I, I, I think that one of the reasons, and this is me purely speculating, but I think one of the reasons for Pope Benedict's resignation was the fact that as, as someone advancing in age, he saw this as an urgent need in the church, as an urgent need for reform, for increased discipline among the clergy, and that um, as an older man, he might not be up to the challenges that that would involve. Now, I don't know that. That's my personal speculation but i think that this that this is something that you know looms over the church um and because in many ways it has still not been addressed in a comprehensive way now it's an immensely challenging thing this is um you know the church is both an institution and an organism as kuiper might say if i might you know and invoke some of our reformed brethren in this, and institutions are very, very difficult to reform. And there are problems with opacity in institutions, with people um, privileging, you know, the, the, the clergy over uh, not only lay victims, but seminarians, other I mean, there are many, many folks who are victims of the crisis of abuse in the church. Uh, clerical and lay um, and and I in you know on the on the ground on the parish level 
I think there's been a lot of improvement in terms of screening of volunteers, these sorts of things. But, you know, this is an issue that continues to plague the church that Pope Benedict took many steps towards addressing, but that, that, that work remains yet unfinished um, and uh, is, uh, is, is work that is desperately needed in the church. Let's move on to our next topic. And uh, as we noted, the uh, death of Benedict XVI did not trigger a new uh, election of a new pope, uh, although perhaps the uh, the smoke system of trying to uh, indicate elections turning out well or not would have been helpful to uh, Kevin McCarthy, who is finally the Speaker of the House after 15 rounds of voting. A lot of black smoke there before we got the white smoke. Uh, it is the first time since the 1800s that it has taken this long to elect a Speaker of the House. Uh, and just just to note that if 15 seems like a lot based on recent history, uh, compared to that last time it went beyond a single ballot, it's not. It took 130 ballots and I believe about two months uh, in order to get a Speaker of the House. I cannot remember the date. Um, we'll put something about it in the, in the show notes for uh, people who want that context. This was uh, fascinating is the only word that really comes to mind uh, and and the kind of thing that was created by uh, one political party having such a narrow majority. And I have so many conflicting opinions on what we just witnessed in Washington with the election of Kevin McCarthy, things that I think it signals that are good and things that I think that it signals that are bad, which is probably just uh, – probably the way that it should be. Um, you know, no, no thing is purely one or the other. Uh, but it is nonetheless a very bizarre and interesting start to this new Congress where it, it is just the case that control of federal government is one divided but very narrowly divided. It is a five-seat majority for the Republicans in the House of Representatives. It is a really one-seat majority for the Democrats in the Senate. That's complicated a little bit by people who now affiliate as independents but still caucus with the Democrats. It's messy. It is very messy. It's not 50-50 anymore, though, with the vice president breaking the tie and, of course, a Democrat in the White House. What do you make of – so much to do and so many rounds before Kevin McCarthy can finally realize his singular dream of becoming the Speaker of the House. Um, I mean, I – on the one hand, you know, kudos to him for sticking it out. <laughs> um, I would think after the 12th time a person has failed that I, – I didn't follow every single vote. I do know that in the 12th one he got fewer votes than Jeffries, the Democrat. Um which is a little surprising given that his party had a majority. Um, so, I, you know, you'd think he'd just be disheartened and, and be like, fine, someone, you know, wash his hands of it, walk away. Um, but, yeah, he stuck it out. He got there. He made some compromises. Uh, we can talk about those. Um, I think a lot of our analysis back from November when we talked about the election uh, still holds. Um, so on the one hand, uh I remember Democrats celebrating the results of that election, which, sure, they could have lost worse. And, you know, that's that's the other side of the coin. But they still lost the House. They, you know, they lost seats. Um, 
as you said, the Senate is almost a 50-50 split. Uh, it is it is partly due to the Democrats not having things together that the Republicans got into this situation in the first place. On the other hand, uh, they're absolutely right, and anyone watching this can obviously see that the Republican Party is an absolute mess. Um, they won the elections where they put like a normal person on the ballot. <laughs> and then they picked a lot of pretty uh, eccentric candidates uh, for other for other offices. And basically all of them lost for the most part. Um, and it all should be noted, lost. too, that one of the concessions that the objectors to Kevin McCarthy becoming Speaker of the House won was – Basically, an agreement with between Speaker McCarthy's uh, super PAC and the Club for Growth uh, that they're not just now going to try to find the most electable candidate in a primary and back that person. They're going to let it be a free for all, uh, which is a an interesting evolution of uh, what for years was called the Buckley principle, which was you in a primary, if, if you're of the right, you should support the most conservative candidate electable. Um, but I don't even think it's true now that you're just saying that you support the most conservative candidate because I have a hard time delineating just how much more conservative or not conservative a Matt Gates or a Lauren Boebert is from a Chip Roy or from your just average pick uh, out of a lineup rank and file Republican in the House. They're all pretty conservative. The difference seems to be uh, how inclined they are towards being entertainers rather than legislators and being radicals uh, rather than temperamentally conservative. I think that if you're going to say that they're not conservative, um, it's it's funny because the ones who are not conservative, the ones to me temperamentally are not conservative are the ones who are often being called the most conservative, which I find just an interesting, I think, misunderstanding that a lot of commentators and a lot of the media has about the current shape of the Republican Party and the, and the political right. I mean, I think when you have the when you have 15 votes, that's a failure of leadership. The Republican constituency is in a state of flux. Um, many of its seasoned lawmakers have departed um, from the House, from uh, <clears throat> positions of leadership. And you have at this point no clear direction from the party. And when you have a situation like that, um, I think we're looking at a very unstable speakership. Now, that might be a good thing, and we and we can talk about it. some of these rules changes. Actually, you know, uh, some of these compromises would make the speaker, at least in principle, if not in practice, um, less of a dominant figure uh, in the Republican caucus. And that is probably a good thing. Um, we have had a tendency in you know recent American history for more and more power to be centered in the person of the speaker themselves rather than in the House as a deliberative body. So there are um, there's there's grounds for hope that some sort of working coalition could emerge if the House is less clamped down. It's important to remember that it's not, you know, although there was although there was a very strong sort of right-wing populist constituency 
aligned against Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy was not without his critics outside of that constituency in the party. I mean, almost almost universal dissatisfaction with his leadership. And 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 when you have a situation like that, you have, you know, a, a lack of party discipline and you have things that go to, you know, 15 votes before deciding on the person that everybody thought going into it was the anointed anyways. I mean, the, the fact that the resolution is still McCarthy as speaker is very interesting to me, given how widespread dissatisfaction was. It doesn't seem that there's another figure that people are more comfortable with. This is where I think I have to make the obligatory marketing guy point uh, to piggyback off what you were saying, Dan, that um, but one of the first questions when coming up with any kind of a product that you need to ask from a marketing perspective is who's the audience for this? And the answer to that can never be everybody because everybody is not an audience. Um, you know, the, there, there are jokes about this, but like, you know, trying to design a car by committee in order to appeal to everyone just ends up with a nightmare of a car. You know, just by nature, you have to exclude certain audience, potential audiences from the final product that you are creating if it's going to have any kind of meaningfulness to the people who are going to be consumers of that product. Now, think about Kevin McCarthy in that same vein. Uh, I think this is what you were, were referencing at is that Kevin McCarthy is, is a fascinating figure to me. Um, if you go back to when he first enters Congress, he comes in in the Tea Party wave. Uh, so he's a he's a striking the pose as a Tea Party guy because uh, that was the wave that he was riding at the time. Uh, he is one of the three people immortalized as the Young Guns. Um, the other two, for your reference, if you've forgotten from that book that was published, I believe, in 2011, the other two were Eric Cantor, who lost a primary for uh, his reelection bid, and Paul Ryan, the previous uh, to Nancy Pelosi Speaker of the House, the last Republican Speaker of the House, who was also driven out of office by the current political circumstances. Kevin McCarthy is the only one remaining from that. But Kevin McCarthy has also been a super establishment guy when he needed to be a super establishment guy. Uh, he's one of the biggest fundraisers out there. This was one of the Matt Gates arguments against him is that, you know, he's a wholly owned subsidiary of lobbying money, um, that he's super swampy, super establishment guy. But also he was a MAGA guy when he needed to be a MAGA guy. You know, he was meeting with Donald Trump only two weeks after January 6th happens. Uh, Donald Trump, supported his election as speaker. I think one of the things we learned from this is uh, the waning influence of Donald Trump, at least over members of Congress. The, to me, the photo of this that is going to be immortalized as like one of the key memories of this whole experience is a photo of uh, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, who sidebar somehow turned into like one of the voices of reason in this whole thing, which like, you know, you've passed through the looking glass when the person who previously was speaking about the threat of Jewish space lasers is now emerging as a voice of like, I don't know why these crazy people are have such an objection to Kevin. It, it was bizarre. But it's a photo of her holding up her cell phone to a freshman congressman, Matt Rosendale, 
with a call from Donald Trump, like Donald Trump is on the line and Rosendale is just waving it off like he doesn't want to talk to him. To me, that is that is a fascinating image uh, that is going to to live on there. But getting back to my point about marketing and audiences, um, Kevin McCarthy tried to fashion himself into a product for every possible audience. And the problem is, is that you're going to end up pleasing no one and displeasing everyone. And I think at least for 14 rounds of voting felt the consequences of that, that the people within a now divided Republican caucus, some who are more populist, some who are more MAGA, some who are kind of more in the establishment mode, some who are kind of the truer conservatives, uh, more Tea Party types, but don't have the MAGA populist inclination. He wasn't enough to any of them. A lot of them, yes, still voted for him because as as you're pointing out, Dan, there wasn't an obvious this should be the other person. Um, I, I do want to think and I think it was a failure of imagination on a lot of people to say that given enough rounds of all of this, somebody couldn't have emerged as an alternative. I mean, would you if you started getting into the 20s in terms of rounds of voting – I got to think at some point there are enough people getting together and going, this has to end. We got to find somebody else. But I think that is a, on one hand, an indictment of Kevin McCarthy, because you can look at a person like that who has fashioned himself to be appealing to whatever constituency is at the top at any given moment in time as somebody not really having a core, if not really knowing who they are, what they're about, and what they want to accomplish. But on the other hand, the role of speaker is not supposed to be one of partisanship. It is supposed to be a representative of that body. And yes, it is elected by whatever party has the majority control of it. But the role is not to be a bitterly hardline partisan individual in the operation of that role. And we have seen a lot of that. As you noted, uh, we haven't had regular order. Um, The way that the uh, Speaker of the House has kind of become despotic in controlling what is voted on, when it is voted on, if certain things are voted on at all, whether or not amendments can be offered. There were no amendments offered during this last term of Nancy Pelosi being Speaker of the House. There were also no amendments uh, uh, offered or voted on when Paul Ryan was Speaker of the House. This has been going on for a long time. And at minimum, as messy and awful and uh, I think I agree, uh, demonstrative of a Republican Party that is kind of a mess, some of the extractions that they got out of all of this of you know having to vote on uh, being able to offer amendments in regular order um, – Undoing a lot of the centralization of power in leadership's offices, if it does come to be, is a good development that gets us a little closer to that kind of, you know, the Yuval Levin style stuff about Congress that I've been talking about on this podcast for a long time is a good development. Now, whether or not it comes to fruition, whether or not those rules, uh, concessions they got can be circumvented is something we're going to have to watch and wait for. When when those rules are in effect, that allows ordinary members to exercise leadership and responsibility. And I think part of the reason why we have this crisis, why we have, you know, certain members that, you know, seem to be political celebrities more than legislatures, legislators is that They don't have, even if they wanted to, the opportunities to exercise leadership in a true deliberative body. And I think we're seeing 
A, you know, what happens when you don't allow ordinary members to offer amendments, to have a say in the crafting of legislation, that leadership potential never realizes itself. And when you don't have people that are allowed to exercise freedom and responsibility in a legislative session, it should not surprise us that there are an absence, there's an absence of leadership potential because it hasn't been allowed to grow and it's been actively stifled by, you know, those in power in both parties. Um, they've, they've not allowed a new generation of leadership to truly grow up and to uh, be in a place where they can lead. I hate to be the old guy in this discussion, but when I was growing up, the young guns were Kiefer Sutherland, <laughs> Charlie Sheen, Emilio Estevez, and Lou Diamond Phillips, all of whom would make a better Speaker of the House uh, than Kevin McCartney, from Arguably what I gather. True. However, I actually, I'll, I'll be the contrarian here and, and echo some of what you guys have said, um, in that I actually think this is positive. Like, let's go to 15 votes every time. Let's have it be messy, um, as much as, yes, it is a mess, um, but but look at the result. They're saying, well, we got to do something about the process. Maybe it's not enough. Maybe it's, you know, these are just little, some of these are clearly kind of token things that don't even matter and aren't, aren't going to uh, make a difference. But, but yeah, we need Congress to be functional again. And it hasn't really been for a long time, not as it was intended. Um, and part of that means there needs to be open discussion and people need to actually vote on stuff, vote on stuff they actually know about. Right. Instead of thousand page bills, they could never read before the vote comes. Um, uh, if only every bill right, that they voted on uh, was like this, uh, that it you know, went back and forth and back and forth. And everyone knew what their position was because everyone actually understood it from where they were sitting. Um, it's actually, uh, despite all the messiness and all the jokes, it's kind of a model for what Congress ought to be. Um, and maybe the lesson to be learned here. Uh, is instead of this being, oh, boy, we've reached our low point, maybe this is the turnaround point, you know, hopefully. Uh, and I'm not super hopeful, to be honest. But hopefully uh, the lesson could be learned from this, that, okay, things can get done. Things can get done in a way uh, that actually involves listening to people of different parties, different opinions, parties and factions, um, and in compromising, politics is supposed to be the art of com compromise. And you can do that at a place like the House of Representatives, where you have 435 members, in a way that you can't do that uh, with national elections, where you have millions of Americans voting for who knows what reason, for who knows who. Um, we're supposed to be a representative uh, democracy. And I think... Uh, Weirdly, this might be uh, maybe maybe it, it's it tastes odd to us because it's been so long, but it's an example of representative democracy at its best. Um, that's that's going to be my hot take, I guess, uh, is that uh, I I'm I watched it. I laughed about it like everybody else. Um, and I think rightly so to some degree. But there's also some potential here that maybe, uh you know, we can we can take a step back and be a little more humble about the analysis and say, you know, maybe maybe this is the start of something better. One of the most amazing things to come out of this was that C-SPAN was unleashed, because when there's a speaker, the speaker decides where the cameras go, and when there's not a speaker, 
the C-SPAN cameramen decide where to go. And it was interesting because you see all these shots of legislatures, legislators from all over having these side conversations, these discussions, many across party lines with smiling faces. The image of uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Matt Gates, uh, who one could be either – uh, generous or not generous, depending on your point of view, and say that these ki- these people are kind of equivalents on either sides of the ideological spectrum and either political parties. Having a conversation with each other was a fascinating thing to see was even happening. And it happens all the time. I mean, this is the lesson. The lesson is not, you know, the lesson is the speaker's control is not only hurtful to this deliberative process, But it also, I think, you know, in this way that the cameras themselves are orchestrated to make it seem as if this is the only way. Whereas, you know, when you unleash the cameras, there are free-flowing discussions across party lines going on everywhere in the room all the time. These people can come together. They can discuss. They can deliberate. And, uh, you know— They're doing so in a context where that leadership is not there, and hopefully that's a trend that can continue. Let's move to our final topic now. A week ago tonight, the Monday night football game came to a halt when Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin made a tackle of uh, Cincinnati Bengals wide receiver T. Higgins, uh, got up, took a couple of steps, and collapsed to the ground. Now, that's a scene that we have seen, at least up to that part of it, numerous times, and sadly so in, uh, in the NFL, where players suffer usually some kind of a head injury that renders them foggy, if not unconscious, and they can't continue. Uh, The DeMar Hamlin incident, obviously, as people know by now, was different in that he suffered a cardiac arrest on the field, had to be revived before being uh, sent off to the hospital. Uh, The good news is that he does seem to be doing very well. Uh, He seems to be on the mend. Uh, That is all very good news. Uh, However, a lot of the controversy about this was in reaction to how the National Football League handled it in the moment. And I I would say at at minimum, you want to give a little bit of grace to people who are trying to make decisions like this, uh, who are trying to deal with a lack of information like this in real time. And uh, the form that sticks out to me most as I sit here behind a microphone is – the broadcasters and the people in the ESPN studio who have a very difficult job in that moment, which is you don't want to speculate, but you also have to fill time. Uh, you, you're just not cutting off the broadcast. It's it's not like it uh, would be decades ago where you would just go to the test pattern. You can't do that anymore. And I think uh, all things considered, Joe Buck and Troy Aikman and the, the crew that was in the ESPN studio did a very good job of not speculating on what was going on and having as responsible a conversation on almost no information as they possibly could. Uh, but the NFL, of course, has to make decisions about about whether or not they're going to resume the game. And probably the biggest point of controversy was that uh, the commissioner, Roger Goodell, had allegedly said, you know, after 
Hamlin is loaded in the ambulance and taken off. Everybody has five minutes to warm up and they're going to resume the game. And it was the coaches of the two teams who basically met at midfield and said, no, we're not going to do that. Um, This game will never be resumed. The NFL has dealt with the implications that has on the playoff picture. But the drive on behalf of Goodell and the NFL to say – you know, even what we knew at the time, which is this was a more serious injury than we typically see in that we knew he had been receiving CPR. But the drive is still to resume the game immediately. Is is this a consequence of just putting far too much importance on something like football, professional football? And I guess by extension there – the money that is derived from things like Monday night football. Because I also tend to think, and maybe this is cynical of me, that if this had happened during a 1 p.m. game on Sunday, the push to resume the game that quickly would not have been as intense because it's not Monday night football, which is the only game that's being played and the single focus of so many sports fans on a Monday evening. I mean, I... I don't think the NFL has a great track record about caring about their players, really, um, in in all sorts of ways. Player misconduct. I mean, people get suspensions, that sort of, you know. But there's there's just a lot that's tolerated, whether it's you know head injuries, you know, th- this kind of stuff. And I'm sure there's good people also trying to fix that, right? But you know, this is to me is symptomatic of a bigger problem um, that you know. Like, okay, he's off the field. Let's get back to the game, right? Um, and, and I mean, I, I am so impressed by the coaches of, of the Bengals and, and the Bills um, and really every team, every team around the country uh, this week um, changed their colors at their stadium, Ch- you know, put supportive messages up. Um, the solidarity uh, for, for DeMar um, and uh, the amazing millions of dollars to this charity he, he supports – um, from just, you know, your average American, um, that was actually really heartening to me that yes, you know, there was a five minute push to try to get the game going. Uh, there was one or two people trying to say, oh, you know, so-and-so tackled him wrong or, you know, what, you know, trying to place blame when it was really genuinely a freak occurrence. Um, but for the most part, uh, people came together over this, uh, in a way that we just don't do enough as a nation. It shouldn't, hopefully take tragic things to come together uh, with that kind of solidarity. I think uh, there are some good causes a lot of Americans could get behind uh, if they weren't too distracted uh, by partisanship and everything else. But um, but I, my takeaway was was more just the the national response. Um, so I you know I think the NFL has a lot of work to do. Still has a lot of work to do um, in terms of caring better for their players, whether it's yeah, I don't want to get into specific uh, things that have have been politicized, but there's just a lot of things that it seems silly um, to make a big deal out of uh, to dis- seem seemingly uh, discard a person for the sake of a game. Um, the game can't be played without the people, um, and they they are fundamental to that. Um, it's a great game. I love watching football. I'm a, I'm a fan, uh, lifelong Lions fan. So you know, um, I think it's probably built one of the, one of the the best aesthetic disciplines I've ever embraced is being a Lions fan. But uh, um, you know, had a winning season this year, so I was happy for that. Um, but but I even saw I you know I watched the Rams game 
the Rams were supposed to win, but they didn't. Uh, and then the Lions did win. Um, but even there, there was, you know, one or two players that occasionally in the moment they get a hot head. But I feel like even the players seemed, you know, I saw players from other teams helping the guy up who was slow to get up. And usually it's they kind of just walk away and they let let each team deal with their own people. Um, so maybe this is this is again something that could be an impetus for a, a change of the culture a little bit too. That there would be a heightened level of sportsmanship that that certainly will be necessary um, to value the people actually playing the game more. There's that uh, quote that you usually see after tragic things happen from uh, Mr. Rogers about always looking for the helpers in terrible situations, uh, and to that point, there was a uh, a GoFundMe for. Uh, Hamlin's Charitable Foundation, uh, which was the uh, the Chasing M's Foundation Community Toy Drive, which had originally started with a $2,500 goal and uh, has now raised over $8.4 million as of Sunday. So those are million millions of people who are compelled to do something incredibly kind and generous for other people on behalf of someone who suffered something so terrible. And that is the kind of thing that we should keep an eye out for. Yeah, I think um, if you look the, the tremendous outpouring of solidarity among players um, was was really amazing. Um, you know, broadcasters. Now the question of resuming the game, I was trying to think back because we had you know a player nearly die on the field. Um, and that is a very, very rare occurrence in professional sports. In fact, surprisingly rare. It happens. Um, we think of uh, Dale Earnhardt as one of the sort of iconic, you know, perished in a race. But, you know, recently this is not something that happens. And I hope that, that this occasion causes folks in all the different professional leagues to sort of think about, what should our what should our response be when and if and when tragedy strikes? Should we have, you know, a, a, a standard policy? Because it's very hard to decide these things in the moment, and it's very hard to judge folks when you don't know exactly how much information they have about the injury when they're trying to make these decisions. But, uh, you know, I think uh, hopefully all professional sports leagues take this as a lesson to review sort of protocols and procedures. Um, you know, there are there are ways in, in every sport to stop play and to resume a game at a later date or come up with some protocols as to, you know, how you are going to count the game in terms of playoff pictures further down the line. And I think when those procedures are in place, it's easier to make those calls when you're prepared to make them. It was in 1971 when uh, it was Chuck Hughes, who's a wide receiver, uh, wide receiver for the Detroit Lions. Uh, it was in uh, 1971 The Chuck Hughes, a wide receiver for the Detroit Lions, collapsed on the field near the end of the fourth quarter of a game against the Chicago Bears. He's the only player to die in the course of a game. It had nothing to do with the play of the game. Uh, it was later revealed that he had um, arteriosclerosis, heart disease, that had been undiagnosed. Uh, so it is... You know, these kinds of things are sad and tragic. I, as a hockey fan, um, you know, there have been 
terrible incidents that have happened in that sport as well. Uh, the young player whose Roy is the last name, and I cannot think of his first name, who played for, I believe, Boston College, uh, who was seconds into his first shift, uh, was going down in the corner, lost his balance, slipped, and went headfirst into the boards. It was paralyzed from the neck down. There's a horrible incident where the Buffalo uh, Sabres goaltender, where a player got tripped up in front of him, skate came up and cut him in the neck and was bleeding all over the ice. He lived. And almost all these cases, they finished the game. They completed the game. And I think what we're seeing here is an evolution in the culture that looks at something like what happened with DeMar Hamlin on the field. And those the coaches that just kind of said for our own other players' well-being who just, you know, one team who watched uh, their teammate almost die, we're just not going to continue. And I think that is a positive evolution, but it is one that is being changed by different sentiments of the people involved in the whole process. And as much as you can try to come up with, you know, hard and fast rules for how you're going to deal with circumstances like this, um, I think what we saw in terms of the emergent leadership of the two coaches of the Bengals and the Bills to make the decision on their own that we're just going to stop and we're going to see you know, where all of this goes before we decide we're going to resume the game if we are going to resume the game is a positive development. And certainly we all pray for uh, a recovery, a speedy recovery for DeMar Hamlin. Uh, one last point I would add, um, you know, there's the question of the players, the coaches, the NFL – uh, but we also got to think about the viewers. Um, and one reason why football is so dangerous is because people like watching the excitement of the game. Um, and I understand that. Again, I'm, I'm a football fan. Um, it might come to a point where the game needs to be a little less exciting to be a little safer. Um, and I hope viewers are okay with that. Um, I, I couldn't help but think this week of... Uh, the song by Bob Dylan, Who Killed Davy Moore, which is all about a boxer uh, who died in the ring. Um, and the whole song is basically Bob Dylan going through different people, the promoter, the the manager, the other boxer, the people there, you know, uh, betting on the, on the fight and all of that. And everyone is denying responsibility. Um, we need more people, whoever they are, taking responsibility and doing what they can with whatever sphere of responsibility uh, has been assigned to them uh, to really work towards the, the sort of positive change that we'll see, uh, you know, if if tragedy happens again in professional sports, that we, we continue to get this kind of solidarity and this kind of, you know, putting the, the person before the game, literally shutting down the game because a person's life is on the line. There's a point here about economic incentives, too, that I think should be made, that uh, your, your point about the NFL being as violent as it was, and there, there were a lot of think pieces that were offered authored after uh, this incident with DeMar Hamlin, uh, raising similar points about the violence level and the consequences that that has on the people who play the game in the National Football League, which uh, are meritorious arguments in the sense that certainly that is the case. We've seen plenty of stories about head injuries and CTE and uh, a lot of the bodily damage that players of this sport over time suffer. Um, it, it, it did strike me as the wrong incident on which to piggyback off of to make this point because just like with um, the, the Hughes incident that I mentioned before, you know, this it perhaps in some way was contributed to by the hit that uh, the tackle that Hamlin made. But, you know, this is not th – th this was – 
uh, I think, pretty clearly the case of some kind of a pre-existing condition that was at best triggered by what happened on the field. But without the pre-existing condition, you're not going to get the same kind of incident that happens there. So it seems a poor uh, case on which to start building that argument, That's, which is not, again, to say that the argument about the level of violence and the damage that it is causing in the NFL is not worth discussing. I very much think that it is. But the economic incentive point of it too is they have been developing equipment for so long, the purpose of which is to be as safe as possible. And they tell the players that these helmets are the safest they have ever been. And the incentive that seems to exist there is for players as a result to throw themselves around more recklessly than they would otherwise. When you compare the National Football League to either Australian rules football or rugby, both of which are violent sports but have minimal to no padding like the NFL does, you see fewer incidents of injury, particularly head injury. Because again, if you're not wearing a helmet that you're being told is invincible, you're thinking a little bit more clearly about whether or not you're going to lead with your head in making a tackle there. Uh, so it's one of those perverse incentive problems where because we keep trying to make the equipment safer, we actually seem to be facilitating players doing more damage to themselves and to other people as a result of that. And the uh, another interesting take on this was in a really good book I think I've referenced before by Chuck Klosterman called But What If We're Wrong, trying to look at issues we're dealing with right now the way that we look at the past. Now, you know, we think, you know, oh, those rubes, we can't believe that they thought that the sun revolved around the earth. Well, I mean, surely 500 years from now, people are going to look back at things that we believed in the year 2023 and go, how could they possibly believe that? One of the points that Klosterman makes in the book is people think that the violence level of football is going to be what kills it. And his contrary point is it may be the only thing that saves it. Um, that there is always going to be a non-reducible audience that is going to want a contact sport to that degree. And even if the majority of people migrate away to something like the National Basketball Association uh, as just a, a sport of greater interest, there will be people who are going to want that kind of a collision sport. And as a result, it may be that higher level of violence that saves football rather than being the thing that ends up killing it or at least invites a new Teddy Roosevelt to come in and try to fix the sport, uh, at least to the best of their ability. Let's call it a wrap there. I want to thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, again, please look in the show notes where you're going to find a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind, or you can just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this program. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to Dylan. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.